Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. We have a fascinating couple hours for you. It's kind of strange, so uh, take heed. Forensic psychologist by day, novelist by night, Ellery Kane has been writing professionally, creatively for as long as she can remember. And just like many of her main characters, Ellery loves to ask why, which is the reason she became a psychologist in the first place. Real life really is stranger than fiction, isn't it? And Ellery's writing is often inspired by her day job. Ellery, welcome to the program. I'm looking forward to this strange night with you. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it as well. And uh, so what came first, the psychologist or the writing the novels? Definitely the psychologist came first, although I have always loved to write. Um, And as a kid, I wrote a lot of short stories that were probably dark um, and inspired by a lot of my um, true crime show watching back then. Um, But I didn't pursue that right away. I kind of got lost in this um, professional world of forensic psychology, and I do a lot of writing for my day job. Mm -hmm. Um, Each report that I write is usually about 15 pages long. And I write about eight of those a month in addition to my private practice work. And so all of that writing made me feel like I didn't have much space in my life for my creative writing. Um, But about six years ago, I decided, you know what, now is the time. I I know I want to to write creatively. And if I don't do it now, who knows when I'll ever get around to it. Um, So I set out and wrote my first book. And that's eight books later. Um, Have any of your books been turned into movies yet? Not yet. Fingers crossed that's somewhere down the road. Um, I I think there's a couple that would make pretty good um, series or or movies. Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think your latest book could be a hit, Watch or Vanish. Uh, I hope so. Now, when we talk about a forensic psychologist, what exactly is that? You know, I think... A lot of people have a misconception about what a forensic psychologist is and does. Most people probably think either CSI or they have some combination of Clarice Starling, you know, interrogating Hannibal Lecter or even Alex Cross um, in the James Patterson books, Um, you know, doing profiling, analyzing crime scenes. Actual forensic psychologists uh, probably are not that glamorous. Um, what we do involves the intersection of psychology and the law. And that can be a broad range of different issues, anything from determining if somebody was insane when they committed a crime to determining if they're competent to stand trial to even getting involved in issues about parenting like child custody or termination of parental rights. And what I do specifically is violence risk assessment. Um, so that's one of my primary areas of expertise. And when you when you get into this, give us kind of an example of your day-to-day life. My day-to-day life involves a lot of listening and a lot of writing. Um, you know, I would say, and, and both of those things are, are pretty exhausting at times. Um, so typically, I get assigned uh, eight cases a month for my violence risk assessment job. And I typically would go in to the prison. Now, this is pre-coronavirus. Now, I I interview my inmates on Skype. Um, But previously, I would go into the institution and 
sit down in a room with an inmate and I would conduct an interview where I would learn everything about that person's life from beginning um, to where they are now. And prior to doing that, I would, of course, do a, a pretty extensive file review. Um, in California, we call it a C file. And I would look through the C file and review everything that I needed to know about that inmate before I went to meet with him. Um, and then after meeting with him, I would return home and I would start to craft a story that's not unlike the stories that I write um, for my night job, um, but I would craft a story about this person and how they came to be who they are and how it is that they, in most cases, came to commit a violent crime like murder. Were the inmates willing to tell you what they did, and do you think they were truthful? Well, it definitely varies. Um, so I would say that a, a fair percentage of them are willing to talk about it, and the reason for that is that when I'm seeing an inmate, typically, these are life-term inmates. So they have been given an indeterminate sentence, which just means that they have to prove their way out of prison. They, they don't have a determinate date where they're definitely going to get out. They have to show that they're, they're ready for release and that they're not going to pose a danger to society. Um, so because of that, they approach the interview, I think, a little bit differently. Um, and many of them have been incarcerated for over 25 years. Um, most of the men that I see are 50 or older. Mm. And so they have a little bit more perspective and a little bit more insight on things than they probably did when they first came into prison. So most of them are pretty ready to talk about it because they know this is a step in them potentially getting released. Uh, now, there are a few that haven't changed, um, and there are definitely some, you know, that, that still they might deny the crime altogether or they might minimize it. Um, things like, you know, the gun just went off, um, right, right. That, that kind of thing. So I think it, there's a real range um, from, from those who really are ready to talk about it and those who are still holding back. Were you in the prisons with them before COVID? Were they bound or were they just sitting there? So typically, and this is like a, a con, kind of a, um, a thing that people want to know a lot about. Like, yeah, because I'm, really I'm leading up to room? a follow-up on this one. <laughs> yeah. So are you really, uh, you know, alone in the room with a murderer, and, and what is that like? Um, yes, I am alone in the room with the person um, because of confidentiality. So these inmates still have uh, certain rights, and, and part of that is that um, their, their report is is confidential in the sense that the guards and other inmates aren't allowed to hear that information because it could potentially be harmful to the inmate if they're revealing things. Um, for example, if an inmate has committed a sex offense, that's like, you, you know, you're just a pariah in the prison environment. So you don't want guards and, and other inmates mm -hmm. to be able to hear that sort of thing. Um, but typically they're not bound. Um, it depends on the institution. So some of the more... Uh, secure institutions, Pelican Bay, which is up near the Oregon border, used to be one of those. That's a kind of a supermax type facility. And in those uh, institutions, if the inmate was a certain of a certain level, um, a certain security risk, 
they would be put in what's called a therapeutic module, which okay. is really just a fancy way of saying a cage. <laughs> it kind of protects you, right? It, it does. It does. And and actually, the first time, this was my second month on the job, um, and I had really never worked with inmates before, um, and I got sent to Pelican Bay. And, I, you know, of course, I want to do a good job. I'm just starting out, so I didn't want to admit that I was at all nervous. I was like, yes, of course, I would love to go to Pelican Bay. Um, so all the inmates that I saw were in what's called the security housing unit or the SHU. And these are kind of the, the worst of the worst. These guys pose the biggest threat in the institution because many of them are still involved in gangs and violence. Mm-hmm. And all the inmates I got assigned were in the SHU. So as soon as I get in this, the SHU, which is just long concrete hallways um, where there's really no people because all the inmates are in their pods. Um, the guard tells me, okay, well, here is your stab-proof vest. And I think at that moment, Jeez. my heart probably stopped. Yeah, <laughs> going, what am I getting into? Exactly. What have I gotten myself into that I'm actually going to need a stab-proof vest to perform my job? Um, of course, it was just a precaution, um, and, and I did wear it, um, and they brought me into the room, then they brought the inmate in and put him in the cage, and I, as soon as I saw him walk in, just a very large, imposing man, a lot of tattoos, crazy hair, I'm just like the person that you would think of when you think of a scary inmate. And that was really the moment that I was like, I, I don't know if I am cut out for this. Like, I'm not sure I can do this. Um, but of course, I, I had no choice. I was in the vest. <laughs> I was in the room. And I, I couldn't run away. Um, so I, I, I proceeded forward. I ended up doing the interview. And I, I was frankly surprised um, by how how easy these guys really are to talk to, even the, even the worst of the worst, the ones who have still really not reformed their lives. They're, they're mostly just like everyday people, um, which is probably one of the most surprising parts of my job. And in your dealings with these people, how many of them are there for murders of anger where they didn't plan it, but they ended up killing somebody in some altercation. I think that's pretty common. You know, there's obviously there's so many different kinds of cases that I see. Um, There's definitely those cases where it's just a a bad decision. And a lot of those, the kinds of cases that you're talking about also involve substance use. So it's not just a moment of anger, but it's a moment of anger. And I had 10 beers and, that all gets exacerbated, and then the person makes a terrible mistake. Um, There are also those cases that are are very much the opposite, where it's more premeditated and and planned. But I would say a a good portion of the the men that I see have committed impulsive crimes. So it's not like they've really sat around and, and planned the perfect murder. Um, Most of them, it's impulsive. It's just a bad decision, and this is sort of the result of that. Have you ever interviewed a serial killer, like one of the names I mentioned before you came on? Thank God, no. <laughs> um, you know, I've thought about this a lot over the years, like, would I want to interview one of those types of people? 
I'm, I would in a sense that I'm obviously very curious and curiosity is what drives me and my work. Um, I am always wanting to understand people better, understand the dark side of people better and understand why people do things. Um, but fortunately, I think for me, I kind of get the best of both worlds. So I get to see that little peek into the dark side, but I don't have to go all the way into the dark room um, where those men that you mentioned um, are more more in the psychopathic range, um, a little bit more evil, if you will. Yes. Um, whereas well, the, the men that I evaluate... Um, you know, typically a serial killer is not going to ever come up for parole. I mean, let so, me bu- let me buzz through their names and how many people they reportedly killed. Did, okay. did Dennis Rader, still alive, 75 years old in prison in Kansas, kill 10 people. Ted Bundy confessed to 30 homicides. They say the number could be even bigger. He was executed back in 1989. Ed Gein, who was the sicko who would... Uh, carve people up, uh, confessed to killing two women, uh, but uh, he did it in a very bizarre way. Jeffrey Dahmer, 17 young teenagers and boys and men, uh, cannibalism and everything else, he killed 17. John Wayne Gacy killed 33 young men. Uh, He's dead now, too, thank God. Richard Ramirez, uh, he killed uh, a number of people. The Night Stalker, they called him. Uh, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, eight people. Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler, way back in the 70s, 13 people. I mean, what possesses these people to do this, Ellery? I think those cases that you mentioned, they're, they're really outliers. I mean, a lot of those men, um, what's, what's driving a lot of their behavior is sexual sadism. So they get a sexual thrill out of killing someone and or then having sex with them after they've killed them. Um, it's, a, it's sort of a compulsion, um, which is very different than what we talked about um, just previously, the, the men who just commit, uh, it's a mistake, it's a, you know, a sudden impulsive thing. Sure, they... um, it's not this compulsion that we see with serial killers. Something has happened to these serial killers when they were kids, obviously, don't you think? Yes, for the most part. I mean, I've I've definitely read a lot about various serial killers, and I think that most of them do have trauma, um, and that that they do share in common with the men that I evaluate because um, many of them have trauma as well. But I think what's possibly different about serial killers is that there is that maybe that biological piece. Um, that there's something just a little bit different about them biologically. Um, and I know there's a lot of different um, studies looking at, at the brains of psychopaths yes, um, and how yes. they tend to be a little bit different. Um, and so I, I think that they have some of the nature component going on, some biological component, that then the trauma sort of triggers or feeds into and that's what ends up producing these men that are really feel that compulsion or that are driven to kill. I mean, it's really, it's, it's bizarre. And, and you're right, there is a distinction between the serial killer who, you know, goes after similar people over and over and over again for these satisfactions than someone else who 
you know, committed murder, uh, either because of anger or something or, or, you know, committed a crime and ended up shooting somebody in the process or something like that. Right. And I think one of the, the main differences is that when you're talking about a serial killer, there's not really a lot of hope. You know, if, if no, you're working with no, serial you... killers, there, there's not really much, much to work with there. Um, but the men that I evaluate, I really get to see actual change, which I think is really cool. Um, and it's actually sort of a, a, a hopeful and um, a, a look into redemption. Um, so, so I prefer that, even though working with serial killers and, and understanding their minds is, is super fascinating, it's not very hopeful work. Well, like the, the police officer who need George Floyd and George Floyd died, he, you know, he, he killed him. Um, I don't think he woke up in the morning and said, I want to kill some guy. Uh, but exactly. but but he killed someone, and I'm pretty sure he's going to get convicted once he goes to, to trial and everything else. But in a case like that, does he stay in jail for the rest of his life, or can you rehabilitate somebody like? I mean, how do you handle that? I think, for the most part, most of these sort of everyday um, or you know murder or next door types can definitely be rehabilitated if they choose to engage in that process. Uh, there's not a tremendous amount of rehabilitation available in prison, which I think is a common misconception that, that there's all this treatment available for people in prison. Um, it's, it's really not that great. Um, there are self-help and other types of programs they can get involved with. But a lot of times, short-term inmates get access to those programs first. And, you know, then in terms of mental health treatment, like, of course, you would think, okay, this guy committed murder. He needs therapy. Um, but in, the way that it works in prison, at least in California, is that um, you don't really get access to those kinds of services like individual therapy unless you have a true major mental disorder like major depression or um, schizophrenia. So a lot of the guys who just want to work on developing insight, they don't have that, that opportunity to do so in therapy. By the way, um, we have a huge prisoner listenership, and so you're being heard in prisons all around the country right now. Just oh, so wow, that's, that's really yeah. cool. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.